Hi, Little Bob here to let you know that my Bobopedic mattresses offer the comfort and quality of a national mattress brand for half the price. No matter your budget, there's a Bobopedic memory foam hybrid or hybrid plus mattress for you. But don't take it from me. Check them out at mybobs.com. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here to set you free. How are you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Sorry, I haven't been here for a couple of days, folks. My father-in-law was uh, suffering and and dying and we uh, flew to Orlando, Florida to be by his side. He did pass on um, and uh, he uh, is being uh, buried actually uh, as we speak, but there are memorial services being held in different cities for him because my husband's family is scattered throughout the country and some people aren't as comfortable traveling because we're not truly um, completely out of the COVID uh, pandemic. I want to thank everybody uh, who online, whether Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, uh, my text messages, my email, uh, gave their condolences. Uh, They were all uh, wonderfully uh, heartfelt messages. And uh, my husband, my children, and I uh, truly appreciate uh, the family that we have, uh, the friends that we have, And those of you that have become family and friends through social media, um, whether you just uh, read things I post, whether you watch me or listen to me here, or whether you uh, watch me on television. In this hour of the Leslie Marshall Show, before we bring our great guest on coming up in the second half, let's start it off in the first half with something we like to do and something we call ripped from the headlines. Kevin McCarthy, Republican from the state of California, where I am and where everybody has an opinion about it. Hey, look, can I just say this little sidebar? If you don't like California, please don't visit and please don't move here. We're fine with that because we will have our population increase once again. We just went through a pandemic. We had some birth rates down. We had people also afraid to sign the census. A lot of us, the consensus here in California is we don't have an accurate headcount. We'll see how it is uh, going forward. But, you know, if you don't like it here, you don't you don't have to live here in Maine just say, I have lived in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Florida, Wisconsin, Ohio, New York, Illinois, California, and Texas. And I've lived in multiple cities in all of those. I've lived in Boston, Providence, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, Houston, Chicago, Milwaukee, Buffalo, New York City, and Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Marky Mark, did I miss any? Um, and every place I've lived, I think that you may have gotten it there. I may have gotten it right. Uh, every place I've lived, there's good and there's bad. And there's one thing that I have found, and I've also lived in Pakistan and Mexico, uh, Israel, London. Um, every place I've ever lived, there's good and bad. And there's one thing I have to say that if you have someone you love near you, that can be a friend, a, a partner, children, family. If you have a a job you enjoy, a roof over your head, 
and enough money to pay those bills and, you know, put, you know, food on your, your table so you can sleep better at night. Um, not only are you truly blessed, uh, but pretty, you know, pretty good, you know, I would say. And quite frankly, if I have those things, I can live anywhere because I have. <laughs> I've lived places I never thought I would live. And honestly, I've, I've enjoyed every single place that I've lived. I've made friends and worked with some great people every place that I've lived. And uh, I'm living in Los Angeles and I love it here. And I won't be here forever because <laughs> one thing I know about life is when you tell God your plans, if you want to make them laugh, just do that, right? Tell them your plans. Um, and uh, But I also lived in Washington, D.C. I forgot uh, to mention that. Um, but, but I mean, you know, bottom line, I, I don't. I don't know where I'm going. I mean, you know, my husband and I expect to stay here at least till our kids graduate college. But, you know, we're not necessarily going to retire here. We don't know what happens. Where do my kids end up? Where do they get married? Where do they have kids? You know, uh, you know what happens? You just don't know. You don't know the future. Right. I certainly don't. Anyway, so that was a sidebar. So I know you all like to give your opinion of California. And that that's lovely. But, you know, talk amongst yourselves because those of us that live here are happy and we don't need you move here or visit or what you do anyway house minority leader kevin mccarthy republican from california will oppose a bipartisan deal that was announced last week that would form a 9-11 style commission to investigate the january 6th capitol riot that's what his office announced today i do want to remind people of one word benghazi and there were 17 17 i repeat 17 that's 10 plus 7 17 independent bipartisan investigations, by the way, that found nothing that Republicans wanted to pin on Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, or the Democrats. Uh, but there were 17 for Benghazi, and we're asking for one for January 6th? Anyway, this is why it matters. McCarthy's opposition to the deal, which was negotiated by the top Republican and Democrat on the House Homeland Security Committee, underscores the internal divisions that continue to plague the GOP in the wake of January 6th. And I, as a Democrat, get popcorn for those types of fights. The formation of a bipartisan January 6th commission has been delayed for months after some Republicans insisted that the scope of the investigation be expanded to include violence by far-left protesters last summer. Now, McCarthy echoed that sentiment in a statement and argued that the commission would be uh, w would, you know, be, uh, you know, potentially counterproductive due to other investigations related to January 6th being carried out by Congress and the federal government. So behind the scenes, House Republicans were unsure about how to address the commission and debated over the weekend what approach to take. The feeling among most members is that everyone's nervous about how it could be weaponized to subpoena members. Let me translate that. The most members are scared that people in their party will be found out to have colluded right? Or to have been involved in some way, shape, or form. There are also concerns about how it might alienate members of the GOP base, uh, as well as former President Trump. In other words, anybody who likes Trump, the Trump publicans, not the Republicans, that's who they're worried about. Uh, and uh, it, it, he, he was impeached by the House for inciting the riot, his second impeachment. So what are they saying? Quote, while the speaker has wasted time playing political games, numerous congressional intergovernmental agency efforts have picked up the slack. That's what McCarthy said in a statement accusing Nancy Pelosi of delaying negotiations. Let me just say something about Speaker uh, Pelosi. She gave the, the Republicans had a wish list and she agreed to like, what, 99.9% .9 of them? Okay. So please, you know, don't, cut the crap. 
He pointed to bipartisan investigations by the Senate Homeland Security Committee, the Senate Rules Committee, and a security review by the Office of the Architect of the Capitol, as well as the sweeping criminal investigation being carried out by the Justice Department. And McCarthy further added that, quote, the renewed focus by Democrats to now stand up an additional commission ignores the political violence that has struck American cities a Republican congressional baseball practice, and most recently, the deadly attack on Capitol Police on April 2nd, 2021. Huge difference. January 6th, our Capitol and our elected officials, both Democrat and Republican, both House and Senate, were being attacked. Police officers, one of which will lose one or both eyes and vision in at least one, if not both eyes, were attacked by the base of a flagpole, a pipe bomb was set. There are people that died, there are people that are injured. Please don't tell me that you support the blue if you don't wanna have this commission. Police officers wanna have this commission. And in addition to that, please don't say this is tourism. We have pictures everywhere where people saying it's tourism look like they're scared blankless for their life as somebody close to them, a secret service, or, or security official, uh, you know, plainclothes police officer has a gun drawn as somebody's trying to get in. And, and let's not forget, this was an insurrection. This wasn't the just the threat of violence uh, that they made toward Nancy Pelosi, AOC, Vice President Mike Pence, and others. But this was also an attempt to overturn a free and fair election for the presidency of the United States of America. And I just want to add one more thing. Somebody tweeted something today that I thought was chilling, but I think it's accurate. If Republicans take control of the House in 2022 and a Democrat wins the presidency in 2024, they will try again to stop it and they might succeed. Do not sit on your ass in the midterms. Get out and vote. Our lives depend on it, our nation depends on it, our future for our children, our grandchildren, and this nation, and the world is watching, it all depends on it. So McCarthy added, uh, like I said, and continue, quote, given the political misdirections that have marred this process, given the now duplicative and potentially counterproductive nature of this effort, and given the speaker's short sighted scope that does not examine interrelated forms of political violence in America, I cannot support this legislation. B.S. He's trying to become speaker. B.S. Let's take a listen to Democratic Caucus Chairman Hakeem Jeffries, who I adore, on House Minority Leader McCarthy opposing bipartisan commission to investigate January 6th insurrection. By the way, he considers all these Trump publicans a cult. Take a listen. Oh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll listen to that. Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll do more rip from the headlines right after this. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Marshall, welcome or welcome back on Only True Democracy and Talk. Let's continue whether it's ripped from the headlines. 
Um, we were talking about the January 6th uh, commission uh, to investigate that insurrection. Here's audio of Democratic Caucus Chairman Hakeem Jeffries on House Minority Leader McCarthy's opposition to that bipartisan commission to investigate that insurrection on January 6th. Take a listen. Kevin McCarthy also objected to there being subpoena power vested solely in the chair of the commission, when that, in fact, is the practice here in the United States Congress. But in the interest of finding common ground, we agreed to the fact that both the chair appointed by the Democratic legislative leaders and the vice chair appointed by the Republican legislative leaders needed to come together in order for any subpoena to be issued. I don't know what Kevin McCarthy is afraid of. I do. Uh, let's uh, rip another. The Republican-dominated Maricopa County Board of Supervisors said in a letter yesterday that the Arizona State Senate's GOP-led audit of its 2020 presidential election results should be called off. Well, the letter underscores divisions in the GOP between loyalists of the former president, Donald Trump, and those denouncing baseless election claims, uh, like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming, who was ousted last Wednesday as the third highest ranking House Republican after speaking out on that matter and telling the truth. Uh, the county official said in the letter that the audit had left Arizona a laughing stock. Yes, Joe Biden has won that election and that county, how many times now? Worse, this audit is encouraging our citizens to distrust, distrust elections, which weakens our Democratic Republican, uh, the uh, Republic, excuse me, end quote. Uh, here, the Florida-based cyber ninjas, whose chief has supported unfounded voter fraud claims, is recounting ballots from the election. So obviously, very well-trusted individual. Maricopa County, County, County Board of Supervisors Chairman Jack Sellers, who's a Republican, said at a public meeting yesterday he would not be responding to any more requests from this, quote, sham process. That's per the Washington Post. Uh, Donald Trump on Saturday, without evidence, said that the entire database of Maricopa County had been deleted, prompting County Recorder Stephen Richer to tweet that that claim was unhinged, adding, we can't indulge these insane lies any longer. And per the Washington Post, Richer told the meeting, quote, every file the Senate has asked for is there. No files from the 2020 election have been deleted. Now, the state Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Warren Peterson, a Republican, tweeted that he was disappointed to hear that the county has said they will not show to answer questions at a meeting scheduled on the matter uh, for today. Take a listen. This is GOP Maricopa, Maricopa County Supervisor Bill Gates, not the other Bill Gates, saying it's clear that Joe Biden won that county, Maricopa, in the state of Arizona in the 2020 presidential election. Take a listen. Well, and here's the problem, I think. Unfortunately, a lot of my fellow Republicans have done what is easy and not what is right. It's easy to simply feed into this and say, you know what? Yeah, maybe there's something an issue here. Maybe Maybe the election really didn't turn out the way that they're saying that it did. But what we're focused on at Maricopa County is doing what is right. And we've looked at this, like I you know, mentioned in the clip you had there. We've looked at everything. We asked all the tough questions. And the reality is that Joe Biden won Maricopa County. But we've got to start speaking truth to folks. We have to say, these are the results I mean, this has gone through the courts over and over again be re and, and been relitigated. So what we need to do now is accept that and start to move forward as Republicans. Start to make the case 
for why we should be elected in 2022. But unfortunately, we're hung up in 2020 right now. You know what I don't understand as a Democrat? I really don't, folks. When you have a man that lost the Oval Office, that the majority in the House and the majority in the Senate for you with his name at the top of your ticket, why would you want to do that again in 2022? Because my prediction is the Republicans aren't going to gain like they think they're going to. We're already seeing Trump-backed candidates being defeated or not winning uh, in polls and races that they're currently entering. So I, I just don't get that. I mean, why would you bet on a horse that lost the trifecta for, you know, and triple down on that? You know what I'm saying? Let's rip another. The expanded monthly child tax credit introduced in President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package will begin arriving in parents' bank accounts on July 15th, according to the White House. The credit, part of the administration's plan to transform the country's social safety net in the wake of the pandemic, would provide families with $300 monthly cash payments per child up to age five and $250 for children ages six through 17. Now about 39 million households, 88% of children in the United States will be covered by these monthly payments. Uh, this is what the president said, quote, with two parents, two kids, that's $7,200 in the pockets you're getting to help take care of your family. Uh, that is what he said in the address to Congress last month and continued and that will help more than 65 million children will also help cut child care poverty in half, and we can afford it. Yes, we can afford it. Our tax dollars pay for it. And by the way, Republicans didn't clap when they talked about cutting child poverty when he addressed them recently. Let's rip another. The pathway for transforming global energy systems to reach net zero emissions by 2050 is narrow, but still achievable, and demands unprecedented acceleration away from fossil fuels, according to an IEA report uh, published today. Uh, it provides detailed analysis. It estimates what's needed for a good shot at limiting temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And that's the Paris Agreement benchmark, by the way, for avoiding some of the most damaging effects of climate change. The IEA offers frank assessments of the closing window to keep 1.5 degrees centigrade in, in, in sight, but also data-backed arguments for why this is immensely heavy lift is cost-effectively achievable. Current national targets, even leaving aside the absence of policies to meet them would still leave 22 billion tons of CO2 emissions in 2050, they project. Global greenhouse gas emissions and fossil fuel consumption are nowhere near on pace for meeting a net zero mid-century goal. And emissions are rebounding strongly from the pandemic fuel drop and further delay. And acting to reverse that trend will put net zero by 2050 out of reach. So the big picture is the first time report uses a hybrid model approach to explore needed uptake of renewables, hydrogen and other tech and it fuses methods from the IEA's annual long-term projections called the World Energy Outlook and its Energy Technology Perspectives series that analyzes hundreds of technologies. Key findings, beyond projects already committed as of 2021, no new oil and gas fields approved for development in their pathway, new coal mines or extensions also inconsistent with their net zero pathway, and sales of new internal combustion engine cars would need to end by 20. 35. The bottom line, the scale and speed of the efforts demanded by this critical and formidable goal, our best chance of tackling climate change and limiting global warming to that 1.5 degrees centigrade, uh, make this perhaps Celsius, not centigrade, sorry, Celsius, make this perhaps the greatest challenge humankind has ever faced, according uh, to uh, Fatah Baral, uh, the uh, IEA executive director. Let's rip another. 
Security forces have killed now at least 802 activists in Myanmar since the military took power in the coup that started February 1st. That's according to the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners, the AAPI monitoring group. Some uh, 4,120 activists have now been arrested, charged or sentenced in that continued crackdown. Let's rip another. And last and rip from the headlines. Congresswoman Val Demings, Democrat from Florida, plans to run not for governor, but for the U.S. seat to unseat Republican Marco Rubio next year rather than pursue that run for governor. Uh, Hey, Demings candidacy will place a household name and one who was on President Biden's shortlist for VP on the ballot for Democrats, a woman of color, a woman. Let's see if we can flip Florida in one Senate seat blue. We did it in Georgia, y'all. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, our great guest. And more with you right after this. Don't go away. realize my microphone is like way over there. Can you hear me better? Can you hear me now? Uh, anyway, I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy and talk. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday. And glad to have back Ian Milheiser. He is a senior correspondent at Vox, which I love. He focuses on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and the decline of liberal democracy here in the United States. He's also author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. He previously clerked for Judge Eric L. Clay of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and served as a Teach for America Corps member in in the Mississippi Delta. Please follow him on Twitter at I Milheiser, I-M-I-L-L-H-I-S-E-R. It is good to have you back, Ian. How you doing? Happy Tuesday and welcome. I mean, I, I'm doing great, even though the world is on fire. Yes, the world is on fire. Uh, our own country is on fire too, right? Uh, sadly. Um, I uh, just needed to get you up there. You went, you faded to black and I can see you now. Nothing with you, just something with my little uh, mouse clicker. Um, Let's talk about some of of the fire. You know, I've been reading a lot of tweets today, Ian, about people that said, and you thought that we were Looney Tunes when we were talking about Gilead and Handmaid's Tale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and maybe we're not as loony, those of us, myself included, who were fearful and and had that tweet. Or as my cousin, who was a liberal attorney in Boston, said, I'm very mad at RBG today. Uh, The Supreme Court announced yesterday that it will hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Now, that is a challenge to a law in Mississippi, where you have lived, uh, that prohibits nearly all abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And that means that Dobbs will be the first abortion case to be fully briefed and argued before the Supreme Court. And that will be the first case about this issue under the umbrella of abortion since Judge uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation last fall in October. So, Ian, how how close does this get to uh, Roe v. Wade? And is that why there are so many court cases, even though they know they're going to lose in different states that have been put forth, especially in these red states or legislation that's being passed that they know that'll be challenged and that they may lose uh, in court in some of these states? Yeah, I mean, this is potentially the end of Roe v. Wade. I mean, I mean, as you alluded to, a lot of states, a lot of red states have been passing anti-abortion laws that they know are unconstitutional under existing law. And the entire point of this thing is to take a law that they know is unconstitutional, get it up to the Supreme Court so the Supreme Court can change the law. So the rule since the court's decision almost 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey has been that 
after vi or before viability viability is when the fetus could live outside of the uterus before vi viability a pregnant person has an absolute right to terminate terminate that pregnancy and this case goes after that proposition like i mean that's the question that the court agreed to answer this case goes after the proposition of whether states are allowed to enact abortion bans or other abortion restrictions prior to viability and if the answer to that turns out to be yes, and I think the answer from this Supreme Court is probably going to be yes, I don't know if any of the abortion right remains. I mean, the, the court might pretend to say, oh, yeah, there's this constitutional right out there, and in some theoretical case it might be protected. But if a state is allowed to say that you can't have an abortion you know, during that period, then that's the ballgame. You know, speaking of that, you know, there are those like Brett Kavanaugh that said regarding Roe v. Wade when he was being, uh, you know, questioned uh, before, um, you know, being uh, confirmed to sit uh, on the highest court of the land uh, that, you know, it, it's precedent. You know, the precedent's been right. set with Roe v. Wade. And, you know, so a lot of people think, you know, we're not going to touch that. Uh, was Brett Kavanaugh lying? <laughs> I mean, you know, Kavanaugh has a very unusual relationship with the truth. I, uh, you know, I, I actually I wrote I have had a piece go up this morning about how Kavanaugh seems to have a pattern of overruling past precedents without being honest about the fact that he's overruling past precedents or overruling past precedents without going through the normal process that the court goes through whenever it overrules a decision. So this is a court that like isn't really concerned. I mean, Kavanaugh is the median justice on this court. It's very mm -hmm. hard to win if you don't have Kavanaugh's vote. And so this is a court that just really isn't concerned with what the law actually says right now, what precedents exist, um, you know, what long longstanding rules are. It's interested in making a whole lot of conservative change as fast as it can. And I mean, this Dobbs case that they just took, they could make a ton of change on abortion very, very fast. I mean, like I said, this is yeah, it's why my hair, my head's gone with questions and I, I got to start writing down because I'm going to forget everything I'm going to ask you. One, when everybody always says Fed Trump state, okay, you know, Fed Trump state, uh, you know, the, you know, hey, you know, it's in the Constitution and, you know, you're covered regardless of what your state tries to do. If, in fact, they rule the way those of us, myself included, as a woman who has a uterus uh, on the left uh, is concerned about, when you know that Barrett, who's an outspoken opponent of abortion, uh, joined a court that pretty much already had five votes to roll back abortion rights even before her confirmation, um, they have a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court. And uh, let, so, so let's, let's talk about that first. If, in fact, they make this ruling, does it, in a sense give the green light beyond the boundaries of abortion to other areas where states go, well, you know, we can trump fed, fed with this ruling by the Supreme Court. To, to me, this is be, not, not just a dangerous slippery slope for the elimination of Roe v. Wade and the elimination of reproductive rights in America as we know it, but other rights because states can say, well, if they did it for abortion, they could do it for, and the list goes on. Yeah. I mean, I think what the court is likely to do here is some version of, hey, remember when we said the Constitution protects the right to abortion? Ha ha ha. Just kidding about that. And, you know, they they 
I'm not sure how direct they will be, whether they'll actually use the words Roe v. Wade is overruled or whether they'll just say, oh, yeah, Roe is still good law, but we're going to allow all sorts of abortion restrictions that, in effect, wind up amounting to a ban. Um, and I mean, if I, I mean, it's definitely true that if they can go after the abortion right, they can go after other rights. You know, they can go after the right to marriage equality. You know, they, they can go after yeah. voting rights. I mean, they, they can go they can go after a lot of things. Um, so I don't think that very much is is safe right now. I mean, I, I think that we have a Supreme Court, like I said, that is very eager to make a lot of change really fast. I mean, they didn't just take this abortion case recently. They just took a major guns case that could completely blow up um, all of America's laws limiting who's who's allowed to have firearms. And I mean, it seems like, you you know, it's funny if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said it's a little surprising that the Supreme Court's being this cautious. I like I. I thought that the Supreme Court was moving slower than I thought. And this month, some switch seems to have flipped where they've all decided, all right, game on, decide to start. You know, we, we, we've waited long enough. It's time to start doing things. Yeah, maybe they had lunch with Marjorie Taylor Greene or went to Mar-a-Lago to play a little golf. Um, the uh, four justices uh, last June mm-hmm. uh, voted to uphold a Louisiana anti-abortion law. Right. And that was virtually identical to a Texas law that the right. Supreme Court struck down in 2016. And Chief Justice John Roberts, who was conservative, he actually had a surprising vote that he cast in that case in this yeah. past summer, uh, June Medical Services versus Rousseau. And uh, it, it was to strike down Louisiana's law. And his opinion emphasized he disagreed with many of the court's seminal abortion rights decisions, uh, but he only voted that way. Uh, the way he did in the June uh, medical case, out of respect for the principle that the court should not simply ignore a ruling that it handed down just a few years uh, earlier. Um, So, you know, if he continues that stance, if you will, with this, now with Barrett on the court, what does this look like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, first of all, like, you know, with Barrett on the court, Abortion opponents don't need Roberts's vote anymore. Um, so, like, there's five justices without Roberts. But even setting that aside, like, I really think that the decision he handed down in this June medical case where he struck down an abortion law was a one-off. I mean, like, literally what happened there is that several years, I mean, not even that long ago, I think it was 2016, the Supreme Court in a case called Whole Women's Health struck down a Texas law which required doctors to have a certain hard-to-obtain credential in order to perform abortions. And then a few years later, this June medical case came up and involved a Louisiana law which was identical to the Texas law that had been struck down. And so Roberts, like the way that I read his opinion in June medical is he was saying, come on, guys. Like, I want to be with you here on getting rid of abortion rights, but you have to give me a case where, you know, it it doesn't look like the that we're just screwing around, where it doesn't look like we're changing the law because we have a new member and so we can get away with it. Like, yeah, it has but to even look though like they're the conservative, law. and think on this because it's going to take a break, even though they're all they're conservative, majority six out of uh, nine of them are. Um, The Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed that a state may not prohibit a woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. Viability is 24 weeks or later. 
this would be uh, prohibiting abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. We'll come back with Ian. We'll come back with you right after this uh, to talk more about this. And uh, something called Pack the Court or Expand It. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't forget. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall. And we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back on Leslie Marshall. Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, also author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Follow him on Twitter at imilheiser, M-I-M-I-L-L. H-I-S-E-R on Twitter. Follow him there. Uh, Ian, thank you for holding. Welcome back. I, I was um, asking about the viability, which is mm-hmm. 24 weeks or, um, in, in the past Supreme Court seems, and you had mentioned uh, a viability. Um, would you really bet that this Supreme Court is conservative as it is with a, a 6-3 conservative right-leaning uh, pro-life bend? Um, despite the Supreme Court uh, repeatedly affirming that, quote, a state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate a pregnancy before viability. And in Mississippi, um, you know, this uh, this is a law that, you know, would prohibit any abortion, all abortions after 15 weeks uh, of pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's important to understand how we got here. I mean, the, the reason we have the six to three court that we have right now is because the Republican Party decided it was willing to pay any price, break any norm, burn any bridge and sell itself. So it became a wholly owned subsidiary of the Trump organization in order to gain control of the Supreme Court of the United States. And obviously the only like abortion isn't the only thing that they wanted out of that deal. But it was a huge part of what they wanted out of that deal. And you do not humiliate yourself in that way. And then when you're on the cusp of getting the prize, turn around and say, well, you know, maybe we should be a little more moderate here. Like, I mean, they picked justices that they had a very high degree of confidence would vote to get rid of Roe v. Wade. I have looked at their records and I have a very high degree of confidence that they will vote to get rid of Roe v. Wade. You know, maybe a miracle happens here or, you know, maybe more likely um, some of the justices decide, let's do this incrementally. Let's do this in a few steps rather than doing it in one step. But I would be very, very surprised if any kind of constitutional right to an abortion that's meaningful survives the current the court's current majority. You know, while you talked about slippery slope and, you know, you had mentioned LGBTQ rights or, you know, uh, you know, gay marriage. Um, but but this also comes down to if the court uses this case as a vehicle to end that rule, providing that an abortion patient gets to make the final decision whether to terminate her pregnancy before viability This opens a Pandora's box for politicians and courts to make medical decisions rather than patients uh, making medical decisions, because this could extend to pulling the plug on somebody who is brain dead. This could extend to, uh, you know, you you want hospice for that loved one. This could extend to uh, you, you don't want to have chemo and radiation. You want to you're you want to 
you know, die um, or that you want chemo and radiation. You want to try and kill the cancer in your body. I mean, this, you know what I mean? This scares me when you look at a patient, but this case, it's an abortion patient. But, you know, I think lawyers could certainly, you know, you know, say, well, if if an abortion patient, you know, uh, doesn't get to make that decision, you know, ergo, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that scares me most, I mean, I'm very grateful that I'm not in private practice right now, because like if I was a lawyer in private practice, like a huge part of your job when you're practicing law is clients come to you and say, hey, I want to do this thing. Is there a legal way for me to do it? Or like, if I do this thing, what are the courts going to say to me? And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I could have answered those questions for the most part. You know, I could say, well, here's what the precedents say. And I'm fairly confident the court will follow those precedents. So if you do it in this way, it will be legal. Now the court is so eager to change so many things that, I mean, I did just write a book. It's called The Agenda that like lists some of the things that I'm fairly confident are going to happen. Like, I think that the future of voting rights, for example, is very grim. But I no longer trust my own ability to predict what this court is going to do next because they've so shown so much eagerness to make so much change so fast that, like, you know, there are things I'm going to see coming and there are things that are just going to come out of nowhere. Right. And, like, you, you know, like, for example, wait. There's a constitutional right now to have a church service where everyone is singing and spewing their COVID germs in the middle of a pandemic. Like, I did not see that coming. Like, I thought that justices who claim to be pro-life would be more deferential to states that are saying we are trying to protect human life by preventing the spread of a deadly disease. Do you think if the court does, in fact, side with Mississippi in this case— um, do you think that Joe Biden should and will um, extend the number of seats on the Supreme Court, being that the Constitution does not state it needs to be nine? I mean, realistically, I think it's un- I mean, it would take an act of Congress. I think it's unlikely that and that a bill is going to pass Congress adding seats to the courts, although one was recently introduced that would increase the number to 13. And I mean, my view on this, like. If court packing happens, I don't think it fixes a decision overruling Roe v. Wade because, like, the governor of Texas isn't going to just say, like, oh, well, I guess there's a new court now and I just have to live with them. He's There's going to be massive resistance. He's just going to right. refuse to follow what the court has to say. I mean, I have written a lot about the notion of adding justice to the court. I think that the only circumstance when it's justified, and I'm worried that we have crossed this Rubicon, is if the court becomes so hostile to democracy, you know, if, if, if it starts striking down voting rights laws, if it makes it so that we're, we can no longer have meaningful, competitive, meaningfully competitive elections in this country, then I think Congress needs to intervene and say, no, democracy is too sacred. We will destroy the Supreme Court in order to save democracy. But like, realistically, I mean, so the Supreme Court, so a 13 justice court says that Roe is good law again. Texas refused to follow. Like, is Biden going to send troops? Like, 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 how, yeah. do, how does that play yeah. out? Yeah. yeah. But, you, you know, you know, the majority of people, um, you know, uh, believe that a woman, even if they are pro-life, believe that a, a woman, a woman have the right uh, to choose and, and don't support uh, overturning the 1973 uh, ruling with Roe v. Wade. 
These states care about fetuses, but they also care about money. And if these red states continue to go down this path, I think like we saw with Georgia, you're going to see major sports teams pulling out. You're going to see, um, you know, you're going to see consumerism uh, stopping, tourism stopping. So these decisions could have an economic negative economic impact on some of these states. Would you agree? I mean, quite possibly. And I mean, I think that the long term consequence for these states, it's less I mean, like you might see some corporations and applying pressure. But I think it's it's where you're likely to see the long term consequences is just that young people are pretty liberal. You you, you know, I mean, millennials are the most liberal generation possibly ever, except for Gen Zers. And so, like, if I'm 23 especially if I'm 23 and I'm a woman and I've got a job offer in Atlanta and I've got a job offer in, I don't know, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania is going to respect my bodily autonomy and Georgia is not like that would weigh my decision as to which job offer to take. Like, I I think it's, I think it's going to be harder to get talented young people to move to areas that have laws that are very hostile to the values of those young people. And also all these rulings, even Roe v. Wade doesn't stop abortion. It stops safe abortion in those states. And they'll always go to other states, California, like where I live to get an abortion. So it's not saving fetuses. It's just saving people uh, from uh, it's making people drive or fly further. Uh, Let's go in the last two minutes. I'm going to give you the last couple of minutes here. Uh, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, Uh, says he found a Republican partner willing to work with him to restore the Voting Rights Act. And that is Senator Lisa Murkowski, Republican from Alaska. Is that enough? I mean, that's up to Joe Manchin. I I mean, like, there's two ways to get a voting bill through the Senate, voting rights bill through the Senate. One is to nuke the filibuster, which is he he has thus far said he won't do. The other is to find 10 Republicans. He needs 60 votes. And I mean, Lisa Murkowski is 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 one like, OK, can, can we get two? I mean, here's the thing about Lisa Murkowski, like Lisa Murkowski was almost taken out by like a Tea Party crank in 2010. She won her reelection race in a runoff, like she lost the Republican primary and then she did a write in campaign and she still won. So like Lisa Murkowski is the only Republican senator who can give both middle fingers to her party establishment because she has shown (laughs) that she can get elected even if they shun her. And I mean, there are 49 other Republicans. Maybe someone else really cares about voting rights. But like Lisa Murkowski can show more courage here because I think she understands that her job is less at stake than some of the others. So the other ones that just chicken and care about their, uh, obviously, their uh, position and keeping their job. Uh, I mean, either they're chicken or they just like voter suppression laws. That could be it for some of them, I'm sure. Uh, anyway, Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox. Great book, author of Injustice is the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. He also has another book he just mentioned that's out. Uh, follow him. Uh, show it to me. Show it to me. Yeah, it's it. called The Agenda. Thank you. The Agenda. The Agenda. And follow him at I Milheiser. I-M-I-L-L-H-I-S-E-R. Ian, love you. Thank you for being with us. Always a pleasure to have you. We'll have you back soon. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you, Marky Mark Romaldi, our executive producer. And I hope all of you have a wonderful uh, day. Get vaccinated. And, and, and wear masks. I'm sorry. I don't agree with the CDC yet on that. Wear masks to wash your <laughs> Have a good day. 
Hi, Little Bob here to let you know that my Bobopedic mattresses offer the comfort and quality of a national mattress brand for half the price. No matter your budget, there's a Bobopedic memory foam hybrid or hybrid plus mattress for you. But don't take it from me. Check them out at mybobs.com. Hi, Little Bob here to let you know that my Bobopedic mattresses offer the comfort and quality of a national mattress brand for half the price. No matter your budget, there's a Bobopedic memory foam hybrid or hybrid plus mattress for you. But don't take it from me. Check them out at mybobs.com.